Grant and, and David and, and Chad are, are, are the paid pastors here. I mean, they're good guys, and I've said it before. I mean, they're good. They're paid to be good. I'm good for nothing. I'm good for nothing. So while we're gone in September and October, you're going to know you're getting your money's worth. Yeah. So we're going to be putting in, uh, in uh, Acts 23, Acts chapter 23. Who among you this week had a had a good week? Hands. Wow, that's pretty good. Now this is going to take a little more guts. Who is it that had a kind of a really hard week? Yeah, one yes, the hard week people go like that. Yeah, but I get it. I know you're out there. I want to uh, welcome you to the worst week in the Apostle Paul's life. It's got to be. I mean, Paul had been gone from Jerusalem for five years, and he came back with, with, with I think, pretty high hopes of, of having a testimony in Jerusalem that would kind of cement the Gentiles and the Jews together. Because he's been over in Euro, uh, Western Asia and Europe, evangelizing on his third missionary trip. And he actually brought some Gentiles back to Jerusalem. He thought, hey, this is great. The Jew and Gentile together in one church, this is all just going to be great, only not. It's not how it worked out. Because when he got there, he found that there was a, a church full of people that were legalistic believers, that had kind of believed in Christ, but yet they were kind of clinging on to the law. And, and people that were very suspect to him in this Jewish setting, because he'd even dared to bring Gentiles into Jerusalem with them. That's why I brought this thing as a weight. So if you hear me banging around with it, that's what this is. This is supposed to keep my, my papers all in one place. Well, anyway, so there was a lot of rumors about what Paul was doing, about his teaching against Moses and the law and the temple and all that stuff, and it really riled people up to the point that there was a riot and the riot would have actually cost Paul's life because the Jews were at just a fever pitch in beating him up. But the Romans came in and kind of rescued him. Well, actually, they arrested him because they just wanted to try to keep the peace. But there was such a shouting match with this riot going on about, about all these accusations about Paul doing this and he's done that and so forth. But the Roman commander really didn't care about Jewish law at all, right? I mean, this guy, he said, but I do need to find out what's going on here. Has he broken some kind of law that, that, that would be punishable? Huh. And so they couldn't figure that out because of the noise of the riot. So, so they put Paul in the barracks overnight, and the next day, the commander had the idea, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council, the religious suits, the Philadelphia lawyers come down here, I'm going to put Paul in front of him. they'll be able to clarify what it is that he's done wrong, and then I'll know. There were powerful people that wanted Paul dead in Jerusalem. It was a hostile situation. People were in shouting mode, not listening mode. There was violent mobs that threatened to destroy anybody that didn't have the views that they had. There was things that you could say in Jerusalem at that time and things you couldn't say. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. 
A study released just a week ago has discovered that 62% of Americans, this is a week ago, 62% of Americans are afraid to openly express their views on many things. In some groups, and I suspect this might be one of them, the percentage is as high as 77% of people are afraid to express their views. And people, like back in the day, people no longer just simply dismiss views that they don't share, just like, oh, well, just blow you off. They're often offended by what you say. It's called hate speech sometimes. And unpopular views are met with retaliation. It's a scary time. We find ourselves in a hostile environment, and it seems to be getting worse. So the question that we're going to answer today, for you and for me, for those of us that are kind of have, have difficulty because I'm one of these guys in the face of threats and so forth that just kind of shuts down. I either do that or I get angry and upwards, and neither one of those work, okay? So how should we respond to hostile situations in our culture? Most people, the way that our culture responds to it, now I'm not talking about church, I'm just talking about the culture, they'll either fall into silence or else they'll respond with angry outbursts. And you see that all over the place. The news, social media, in conversations even. But for you and me, silence isn't an option. Because we've been blessed with the task of giving the world the only news that will deliver us from this. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. So silence is not an option. And angry outbursts really aren't either. Although we're seeing those sometimes today. So if you feel caught in the vice of this fear, maybe, or, 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 or actually being, feel like you're pushed into angry out, uh, outbursts and responses, what I want us to know today is that God has provided gospel graces, strength and power that come from the relationship with Jesus to testify of Christ in hostile, threatening times. Because that's where we find Paul today. So let's pick up in Romans 20, or excuse me, Acts chapter 23. And verse, actually, let's pick up in, in chapter 22, the last verse. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he, that is the Roman commander, released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before him. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed law. Do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar 
and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel was spoken to him, and a great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to Paris. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cows in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. A hostile situation. But there's gospel grace for hostile times. My aim in this, because I think a, a, a lot of what we've been experiencing has pushed us to a place that of saying, well, what are we going to do? How do we respond? What do we need to deal with what's going on? And my aim is for us to understand that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we already have everything we need to deal with the hostile situation. I think we'll see that here with Paul. First of all, it says that Paul sat down in front of this hostile group just looking for a place to pin something on him. And it says that he looked intently. And that's an interesting word. It's actually used in Acts eight different times. It says that the disciples gazed at Jesus as he went up into the clouds. Same word. Peter and John, when they saw the beggar on the steps of the temple as they were going, it says that they gazed at him. Same word. Stephen, when he was being stoned, it says that he gazed into heaven and saw the Lord Jesus, and saw the glory of God. And even Paul, when this uh, magician was following them around, and Paul was going to kind of cast the demon out of him or put him in his place, it says that Paul fixed his gaze on Elinus, the magician. Well, Paul says here, looked intently at the council. That is, he looked, and if, if we chase this word out a little bit, we look and we can see that, that what, what, what Luke is telling us here, that Paul was looking in a way to perceive the glory of God in a situation. He was looking past the threats, looking past the opposition, which were seen to the unseen glory of God. It was a God-centered view The realization that even in this situation, that whatever happening, whatever is happening, hostile or not, it's a God thing. And Paul, because he looked at him that way, he didn't see him as opponents to be afraid of and silent or adversaries to be conquered or shamed, but as people the Lord had put there as sinners in need of salvation. Every time I think about something like this, I'm reminded of John Ford. Any of you remember John? He came here several years ago. And John is has a really peculiar ministry. Uh, his ministry is to homosexuals in downtown Portland. Uh, and he was telling us one time about him and one other guy that came down to a gay parade where there were gay and lesbian and transgender folks flaunting their naked bodies and just daring anybody to oppose them. Now try witnessing to that. Do you know what he said? He said the thought that he had, and this has stuck with me, I hope it sticks with you, in the, in the face of this hostility, is he said, with Jesus I know to overwhelmingly conquer. 
that he who is with us is greater than he who is with them. That's the look Paul was giving them. Because the way that we look at people, the way that we look at the situation is going to tell us the way that we view. Paul also had a compassionate view of his opponents. You know, he called them brothers. Now, you and I, you know, can throw around the word brother kind of like a slang thing. Hey, brother. You know, how you doing, brother? It's kind of like amen or whatever. But you know, in, in the Jewish context, it carried much, much more weight than that. It was a term of endearment. It was a term of commitment and respect and love. Now this, remember, Paul is addressing people to enemies, those who wanted to see him dead, those who wanted to try the rumors to stir up people against him, and those who would shortly engage in a plot to have Paul murdered. This is the ones he's talking to and calling, hey, brother. He was loving that's the first gospel grace, is love. There's no substitute for it. And we see, you know, and we all know 1 Corinthians 13 about the, the love chapter. And I love verse 5 and how it fits into this story here because it says, Love does not act and become a it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And we see that here because of the gospel grace that Paul had. And that you and I have. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want to tell you right now, I am not good at loving enemies. <laughs> matter of fact, I'm bad at it. I can try, but it doesn't work. Because that love does not reside in me. It resides in Jesus Christ. Christ gives us the power to love. Christ loves through us. I know I can't love my enemies, but I trust that Christ can love through me. You know, we look about and think about Romans 8, you know, a lot about, you know, all the things that, the, uh, you know, Christ will, uh, you can't, they can't separate us from Christ. Romans 8, it says, tribulation won't separate us, distress won't separate us, persecution won't, peril won't, sword won't, because here's, listen to the end of this, because we overwhelmingly conquer through what? Him who loves us. So Paul was responding to these in love. And it was because of his conviction of gospel truth. It's not some inner moral strength that Paul had in himself. He believed what the gospel says. So the first gospel grace love. Second one, he says... Very interesting statements also found in verse 1. He says, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. Wow. This is in front of the lawyers. This is in front of the people that scrutinize the law. And Paul says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. You know, Paul made a big deal out of conscience. As a matter of fact, in his writings... He addresses the subject of conscience 14 times. And he says in, in Acts chapter 24, just the next chapter, he says, he says, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. Well, what's he talking about? Conscience, that inner sense of right and wrong. Conscience gives you the ability 
to evaluate your own thoughts and desires, to to discern really what's right and what's wrong, or what's good and what's best. That's the that's the job of conscience. And to help us kind of get a handle on them a little bit, I'd like to compare a conscience to a good alarm clock. A good alarm clock does two things. It stays quiet when you should be asleep, and it makes a noise when you need to wake up. Now, the value of the good conscience, the value of the good conscience is a boldness in the face of possibility. Proverbs puts it like this. The wicked flee when nobody's pursuing, but the righteous is bold as a lion. Boldness in the face of hostility. A good a good conscience doesn't lead us to be brash or obnoxious. And you know, there's sometimes I think Christians try to substitute those two things. I can't be bold, so I'll just be brash. Or I'll be obnoxious. Boldness is a different thing. Boldness is boldness in God's control of the situation. In, in as we as we see humility and some other things as we go along the way. It's boldness, but it comes from a good conscience. Paul wasn't saying that he was sinless. He was all too aware of his sin. As a matter of fact, he just talked about, in his previous discussion, about how he'd stood and hold, held the, the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death. Paul knew about his sin. That's not what he's talking about here. What he was talking about was that before these guys, and there was no violation of the law of Moses or the temple or Roman law. There was no daylight between his actions and what he knew to be right. Nothing to hide. So he was confident in the face of hostility. That's a God-given confidence. And we need it in the face of hostility. So how do you keep a good conscience? Had a friend that called me just last week from Hillsborough, a guy that I've known for years. And here's what he wanted to do. He said, you know, he said, you're still over in Bend, right? And I said, yeah. He says, they don't have a DEQ over there, do they? And I said, no. I knew where he was going. <laughs> and over in the valley, all the vehicles have to go through DEQ and it costs money. It has to get a license and you pay and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, he said, would you mind if I used your address? <laughs> and I said, Yes. But I'll give it to you. And we talked for a while. He talked about how he's slow on money and he can't do this. And, I, and I, I sympathize with all of that. But here's what I told him. I said, you know, you might skate past the DEQ by doing this. But what you're going to forfeit is your conscience. That's a high price to pay. That's a high price to pay. The Bible says our conscience can be corrupted by acting against it over and over time. It, it can become seared so that we can lie and cheat and steal without fearing any guilt whatsoever. I love uh, Puritans, as most of you know. I love to quote them, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase a Puritan quote from William Gurnall. Listen to this. Here's what he says. He says, anyone without a good conscience cannot be bold. Such a one must speak softly for fear of waking his own guilty conscience. A guilty conscience hamstrings our testimony. And a good conscience, on the other hand, can give us boldness in the face of adversity. Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, 
Um, she faced adversity from everybody. Nobody wanted her to be queen. There was a deep state in the English royalty there that wanted her out, didn't want her in. Uh, the, the, the military was against her. Everyone was against her. Here's what she said. She said, a clear, con a clear and innocent conscience fears nothing. Now, you and I know that our consciences are not what they should be, so what to do? Here again, gospel grace. Because we know that our conscience can be cleansed from being defiled. A good conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 9.14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. You hear that? We can have a cleansed conscience. We can have that conscience that gives us boldness in the face of hostility because we blow it. And when we come and in the gospel grace that God has given us, we confess those sins to God. And as 1 John 1, 9 says, He, he uh, uh, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing promise. The next thing we see is humility in Paul's suffering in verses 2 through 5. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth, and Paul said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. There you go. You sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law order me to be struck. But the bystanders said, this is important. Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your place, or a ruler of your people. Paul was unjustly struck. And he knew it. As a matter of fact, Leviticus 19, who all these people knew, specifically prohibited punishment before guilt was established and a verdict rendered. It says he struck him on the mouth. Now, if we go back a few pages, we see that Paul was beat up pretty good by the mob before. So have you ever had a like a bruise that's like a day old and then bang it? It probably hurt like the dickens. We see by this outburst that, that Paul is a human. Right? And he was capable of an outburst like that. But we also see by his humility, his submission to the law of God. You shall not speak evil against the ruler of your people. Probably be good for Christians to take note that that the principle there has never been rescinded. Paul could have launched a defense. After all, what he did, I mean, you know, it was justified. They did illegally strike him. But Paul humbly chose to apply the law to his own behavior instead of that of his detractors. Get that? He didn't shrug it off. He didn't assume that since their hypocrisy and their lawlessness was greater than his, that his didn't matter. We know as Christians that when we are humble, it opens the door to God's grace. And Paul was here humble. And we can be humble in those situations too. Because that's the pathway of grace. You know, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
It's interesting that the bystanders, Luke tells us, noticed Paul's sin. They said, hey, you can't do that, chief priest. Yeah. You notice he didn't say, hey, chief priest, why did you have him do that? That ain't legal. That's not what they noticed. What he noticed was Paul's response. And you know, that's the way it's always going to be in a situation like that. We are going to be the ones that are under the microscope. I can tell you, I think, I'm fully convinced myself that if that if that man had gone home and Paul had not repented or at least owned up to a sin like that, the one thing he would remember was, yep, Paul was accused of lawlessness, and yep, that's exactly what he did. And that's the way it is for you and me. But humility, humility made the difference. It wouldn't have made any difference what happened after that. That's what that guy would have remembered. The council broke God's law. It was unjust. They were wrong. But Paul's response was to acknowledge his own wrongdoing and not focus on theirs. In hostile situations, Christians can excuse themselves for their unchristian behavior pointing to a greater sin than theirs. But the lesser sin is not justified by focusing on the greater. But here's what happens. Christians can and do forfeit witness, forfeit witness opportunity by focusing on the sins of others to the neglect of their own. Social media pages are full of things that are right and true. And what Paul was, the, the, the thing that Paul pointed out was right, it was true. Christians are posting things that are right and true, but sometimes the truth is weaponized. It's right, but it's still wrong. God wants us, as Pastor Brintz wants to say, God wants us to clean up our side of the street. And the forgiveness that the gospel offers invites us to do that, to admit our failures before God and man. How can we entice sinners with the forgiveness that the gospel offers, the forgiveness of God? How can we entice sinners if we deny our own need of it? Verse 6, Paul gets to the target. You see, because this had become a Paul thing and a them thing, and it was getting out of hand, But Paul says, and he gets right to the target, the gospel message, he says, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. You see, the issue wasn't about Paul, who he was, what he had done, or how he was being treated, but Jesus and who he is and what he's done and his hope in the resurrection. It's so easy to get lost in the dynamics of hostile situations. Paul only got to see a little bit, right? about the gospel. They got right to the heart of the gospel, the resurrection. And as one of the commentators says, you know, that's the whole, that, that, that one phrase there about the resurrection of the dead is the thing that everything else turns on. Paul was able to disarm their threat with love and confidence and humility. So now, he can speak to them. He did not forfeit his gospel voice by behavior. The Bible says that the anger 
A man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Do you ever notice how angry responses never give way to gospel conversations? They just don't. My wife has a friend that calls herself a Christian. And she posts some really, really ugly things online. I mean nasty. I mean, these things are torpedoes. A lot of them personal. And so we have conversations, don't we, Nancy? He says, I need you to talk me off of the ledge. <laughs> Not to respond that way. Because a lot of times, these things literally descend to, can descend to, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Now, how can Jesus ever come into a conversation like that? God uses a preaching of his gospel to accomplish his purposes. Now here, well, let me see. First of all, when Paul first preached in Jerusalem there, just the day before, it actually got all of his opposition together, coalesced him. But here, the preaching of the gospel divides them. That's God's choice. He turned the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another. <laughs> and they actually, the Pharisees, instead of becoming Paul's accusers at that point, became his defenders. God uses preaching the gospel for his glory. You know, I think that sometimes we have the idea, you know, we want all of our gospel conversations to be in a Philippian jailhouse. Where where we say a few things like this, and people come and they fall on their knees and say, tell me, what must I do to be saved? That's what we're looking for. But if you just look at the numbers, there was way more riots, way more opposition, way more hostility than there ever was Philippian jailers. That's the reality of it. But God is in charge of all of it. In control of all of it. So Paul, who came to Jerusalem with all these hopes, all these things, it just all turned to ashes. And it results in what you could call another mob scene with lawyers. He had to be discouraged. And you know, I, I just imagine him saying, Lord, I'm willing to suffer What's coming out of this? Do you ever get that in these hostile situations? I can see a little bit. This doesn't do any good. Verse 11. Jesus came. But on the night immediately following, right on the spot, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. Notice that it doesn't say Jesus came and stood because he was already there. At the time of his greatest discouragement, he just manifested himself. Jesus knew that Paul's witness, Jesus knows that our witness will be met with hostility. He knew that we couldn't do alone. He had never intended us to. That's why he gave us the Great Commission. And you know the part of the Great Commission that's in bold print? I mean, should be in bold print. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, you know, obey whatever it is I've commanded you. And then what's the bull part? Love. You know what that means? That's caps. That's dark. That's big. 
Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's the whole point. Is the presence of Jesus with all hands and we hand. Jesus says, take courage. You know this, that phrase is repeated five times in the New Testament, and Jesus is the only one that says it. He said it to a paralytic woman, to a paralytic that was being let down through the, the holes and roof. He said it to a woman that had suffered, I think, 12 years with an issue of blood. People that were at the end of their rope. Jesus said, be courage. That's Jesus' word. If you want to know what Jesus has to say to you, at a time when you're struggling in a difficulty and it seems like you're not, it's not going anywhere, that you're trying to witness, to be faithful, He'd say, take courage. Take courage. And he even commended Paul's song testimony, his faithfulness. He's always, remember this, he's always encouraging faithfulness and not condemning our failures. You know, because he used to say, Paul, you know, this was all going along pretty good until you mouthed off to that chief priest. <laughs> you blew it. And then when you threatened him, you know, with a First kind of thing. But he doesn't say that. Always to encourage faithfulness and never to condemn. Success by God's standard is faithfulness. Jesus never said, Well done, thou good and successful servant. Success is measured by faithfulness. Little Johnny. The one that never shot the ball, hardly ever got in the game, was at the free-throw line. End of the game, time expired, team down by two points. He's got two free-throws to shoot. And everybody goes, oh, great. How can, you can't make this up. Why is it Johnny? we got no chance of winning. His dad, who was really quite a good basketball player, was in the stands watching. So little Johnny took the ball, bounced it a few times. Shot it up. First one hit off the front of the rim. He nervously looked around and everybody knew that they were going to lose. Bounced the ball a second time, shot it up, and it rolled off the side of the rim. There's no time left in the game after the ball bounced on the floor after the missed free throw. The game was over. And he turned to walk right straight towards his father who he knew would be disappointed. He said, Dad, I failed. His dad reached down, grabbed him and picked him up and hugged him. Then he said, Son, you hit the rim both times. I think Jesus will take care of the point score. He just wants us to shoot the ball. So what are we taking this? I don't know if we're done a lot of time already going to check. God often sends opportunity wrapped in opposition. And it's a God-centered view, a loving view, that intense view, that gaze that says God is in this. 
that will overcome that. And a compassionate view of those who oppose us. A good conscience will give us boldness in the face of hostility. We can rely on God's grace to help us do what we know is right and fall on His grace when we fail. A good conscience is an important tool on God's toolbox. Guard it carefully. Cleanse it regularly. I don't know. One of the things, that I, I guess this one just kind of jumps out at me. You know, gospel grace means that we don't have to be perfect people with perfect testimony. We just don't. Because the grace of God, the grace of the gospel, frees us to acknowledge our weaknesses and sins instead of justifying our sins by others. Our testimony should faithfully point to Jesus. He might only have a little shot like Paul had to talk about the resurrection, his hope in the resurrection. That might be all you have. But with what we have, we don't want it pointing to us. We don't want it pointing to a conflict. We don't want it pointing to our opposition. We want it pointing to Jesus. Father, thank you for this encouragement, Lord. Um, maybe there are those who are like me, Lord, that are just not very powerful in their testimony. That, Lord, when the, when, when the hostility shows up, we shut down. Lord, that's not an option. Um, and you've given us gospel grace, Lord, in order to be faithful witnesses. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for all that we have. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.